This is the College Football Fix Podcast from USA Today Sports. Welcome back to the College Football Fix Podcast presented by USA Today Sports. I'm Dan Walken, joined by Paul Meyerberg. Talking another week of college football. And Paul, if I had one wish for the world, it would be for people to speak as definitively about anything as Mike Tomlin did on Tuesday when he was asked about the USC job. Did you catch that? Yeah, he said never say never, but never. Um, never. So never. never. Yeah, I mean, we all know. If you have a chance to work in the NFL, you should leap at that opportunity. Like coaches in the NFL get vacation. They have one cell phone for professional use. Like guys in college get like two weeks in June. They've got 17 phones. They never see their wife and kids. They have dinner at home like four nights a year. Um, so why Mike Tomlin, a Super Bowl winning coach, right? He's won a Super Bowl? He's won a couple Super Bowls, I believe. Wow. Okay. Why a Super Bowl winning coach would leave the Pittsburgh Steelers to go to USC is ridiculous. Hey, but then you know what else is ridiculous? Like, why is it insulting that, like, I'm reading that it's insulting for him to have to answer that question? What? We didn't ask for his PIN number. Like, why is that insulting? Yeah. I don't understand. Like, I haven't gotten that part of it, but I, I, I did like the fact that he just shot it down. It's refreshing. Yeah, uh, my mistake. He's only won one Super Bowl. He's played in uh, two or coached in two. Uh, so just the one on his resume. But he has never had a losing season as a head coach in the NFL, which is pretty remarkable. A couple eight and eights. But when you've been in the NFL for as long as, as Mike Tomlin has, his first year was 2007 as the head coach and has not had any under 500 season. That is remarkable. And, yeah, I, I didn't really understand why he got a little bit offended by being asked about it, and he kind of went into the saying, well, Andy Reid wasn't asked about it. You wouldn't ask you know, all these other guys about it. I mean, the reason they got asked about it is because Carson Palmer went on a radio show, a national radio show, and, and brought his name up. Mm-hmm. So that's why he was asked about it. But whatever. Like, I thought the most interesting part of that was it showed sort of the psychology of the NFL coach and how they view college football. You know, there was a time, I, I think, in, in America where if you got a great college football job, it was maybe equal to or better than an NFL job, maybe viewed as having a little more job security or money or whatever. Not anymore. Not anymore. If you're in the NFL and, like, if Mike Tomlin got fired tomorrow, he could – snap up one of those open jobs in five minutes. They would easily take him at probably 20 other franchises. But, yeah, like he's not going to USC. USC is not hiring Jeff Fisher. (laughs) We're at the point of the year now where a lot of these rumors around the USC job are ridiculous. They're annoying. They're wasting everybody's time. Like – the Jeff Fisher thing, the fact that that came up and the fact that people actually talked about it or responded to it for a couple hours was insane. It was ludicrous. Jeff Fisher has lobbied for every open job for the last five years, including Vanderbilt last year, couldn't get that job. He's not getting the USC job. However, one person who I'm increasingly convinced might take the USC job or might 
at least want the USC job is James Franklin because James Franklin is off his game right now. He is rattled. He is wobbly. He is unsure of himself. He is flailing. They lost to Illinois last week. He, he is in his interactions with the press subsequent to that game. He, I, we can all have slips of the tongue and misspeak. God knows I do it on this podcast all the time. But he referred to Ohio State, who they're playing this week, as Illinois, who they played last week. He made a reference to playing in the big house. Like He was all just sort of discombobulated. The story comes out earlier this week that he has changed agents. He is no longer using Trace Armstrong as his agent. He's using Jimmy Sexton. Apparently that happened you know, a long time ago or at least several weeks ago. It's just now getting reported. There's just a lot of weird stuff going on around James Franklin. I talked to somebody at Penn State. There's a vibe around that place that feels like he's leaving. There's something going on. Yeah, he seems like he's carrying this Illinois loss a little bit hard, um, which is understandable. But also, like, if I was about to play Ohio State at Penn State, I'd probably be rattled too. You know, and his program, like, I know they just lost to Illinois, but if you take Ohio State out of the equation, then he's winning like 80% of his games. He just can't beat Ohio State. So why not go to the Pac-12 or the worst that you're going to get is Oregon? So I think there's a lot of appeal for, for USC, for Franklin. I think you see the writing on the wall at Penn State in the East at a time when there's three teams in the top 10, three, two unbeaten, and then Ohio State, and you're thinking, man, it just is never easy. It is never easy. And some coaches have a shelf life. I think Franklin um, is not necessarily some guy who's – whose routine gets tired. I think it connects with people, with his staffers, with kids. But um, this is seven years, I think, at Penn State. It might just Listen, be time. Yeah. I always would advise coaches, you know, unless you're winning national championships, don't stay anywhere longer than 10 years. People just get tired of you. Now, you know, they've got a great recruiting class apparently coming in for next year. Uh, they've recruited really well. They've got a highly rated quarterback coming in. Like, there's a path where it could turn around. But is Penn State on track to beat out Ohio State in the division anytime soon? Probably not. It, probably not. Like, Ohio State's just a better program. They're getting better players. They're a better team. It is what it is. Still be very good at Penn State. If we had a twelve-team playoff, maybe it 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 becomes a little more attractive. You can maybe get in that fairly regularly, but but ten years is a long time to be at a job where you're not winning a national championship. Sometimes change for the sake of change, I would argue, is good. Maybe it's just a little stale. I don't know, but something seems off. He's he's rattled. He's uh, it's hard to describe, but he's he's off his game right now. I don't know if it's the Illinois loss. They obviously didn't play well in that game. What did you think of of the overtime? I I, I found that very hard to watch, hard to follow. I didn't like it. Um, It's a new rule. After the second overtime, they just go straight to dueling two-point conversions until somebody either, you know, gets a score and a stop. I, I, it's the first time I've really, we've really had the opportunity to watch that play out in, a big game like that. I, I hated it. Um, the, the people who made the rule are defending the rule. I think there's got to be a better way. Yeah, I hated it too. 
I hate it like the you know in baseball where you start with a guy on second now in extra innings. I, I don't like it. It's a shortcut. And I think it's unnecessary. I mean, what were the average number of plays in an extra frame? Like if you start at the twenty five, what's the average number of extra plays that you're having there instead of a two point conversion? Four. Well, probably five? ten. It, you know, if you're going a couple overtimes, probably ten. Yeah. Okay, but I'm saying per frame, like yeah, four or five. That makes sense. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. So. And I'm all for player safety. I think it's a paramount concern, but I just don't understand the shortcut. It, it uh, It's an inferior overtime. It is. I mean, no doubt about it. And uh, certainly I don't want to watch Penn State, Illinois, go back and forth two-point conversions, play nine overtimes and score 38 combined points. It's not interested in that. I don't think it's dramatic. I think it's actually less dramatic. Um, I mean, I guess if you were invested in the game, you're an Illinois or a Penn State fan, it's like watching penalty kicks maybe. And I think that it's like, you know, edge of your seat stuff because of that. But just as an observer, I just I was bored by it. I didn't think it was interesting. So I'd like to see them. They're never going to go back, obviously. And we'll get used to this. But I, I having witnessed it and experienced it, I, I don't – I like the 25-yard line. Or at least it's – I mean, it's still better than a tie, but it's not as good as the 25-yard line. It feels gimmicky to me the way that they've done this. And – yeah, the, the five and six, seven overtime games were so rare. I kind of felt like they had a solution in search of a problem with this new rule. But I also understand, like, you probably don't want a seven overtime game if you can avoid it. That maybe does border on player safety issues. But it just seems to me like there, there's got to be something better. I wouldn't mind ties. See, I, I think ties sometimes – are appropriate sometimes to me the point of a result is to say who was the better team who deserved to win the game and sometimes both teams deserve to tie because they were basically about equal I think one of the issues I have with this two-point conversion thing is that it does not necessarily honor who played better in the game or who deserved to win the game it's a little bit roulette ish to me and I just don't like that Um, now you could say all of this overtime stuff in college is gimmicky but this to me feels extra gimmicky I would just say if you don't want more than two overtimes for player safety reasons then you play two overtimes and if you're still tied then it's just a tie I'd be okay with that yeah you're right I think we're like a step removed from having a kickoff like a kicking off to end games like, if we want to be really serious about player safety, let's just have the kickers out there and kick field goals. So I'm not a fan. Um, not a fan. I hate to see this, like, in a really important game, get into three, four overtimes, and you're having two-point conversions. So pretty stupid. Um, I just hope that other teams have practiced their two-point tries more than Penn State and Illinois because that was horrific. Another story that popped up this week uh, in terms of off-field drama was a really nice piece by uh, Kyle Bonagura from ESPN on Nick Rolovich sort of getting inside what happened to Washington State um, as, as it led up to his firing. Uh, there was an anecdote in the story that was pretty remarkable where Washington State folks had figured out in the spring that Rolovich was having hesitations about getting the COVID-19 vaccine. So they got him in a meeting with an immunologist who's one of the foremost uh, 
experts uh, in vaccines in the entire state of Washington. He's, you know, goes all over the world um, trying to eradicate diseases and all that stuff. So, I mean, somebody who really knows what they're talking about. And so this is according to ESPN. Over about an hour, Rolovich drove a conversation that focused on topics that were consistent with what Palmer said has been shared by the anti-vax crowd on social media over the past several years. Quote, kind of typical ones. Is Bill Gates involved with the vaccine? Does Gates hold a patent on the vaccine? Palmer recalled the ESPN. He asked whether SV40 is in the vaccines and whether that could be a dangerous thing. And the answer to that is no. SV40, also known as the simian virus 40, was found to have contaminated polio vaccines in the late 1950s and early 60s. However, multiple studies have not found a link between that and any harmful impact. So basically what we finally have an answer to is Nick Rolovich is just a dummy who spent way too much time on Facebook. Yeah, I think maybe I was holding on hope that there was some real tangible, uh, like, you know, motivation for him to want to get a religious exemption. But if you're just doing this because you went on YouTube for an hour, that's pretty bad. So that's pretty bad. Um, that's pretty bad. I don't know what else to say. Yeah, it's, like, that's it's, not good. Know, it's, it, that's not good. You know, and your sympathy, it, your sympathy runs dry pretty quick. Um, and we get back again to the point of, well, if you really think that, I mean, if you really didn't get the vaccine because you didn't want to get the Bill Gates, Microsoft microchip, um, well, A, you're a dummy, and B, uh, you know, thank you to all the guys whose job you just took away and all the money that you took I away w- from those people. I was impressed with how hard Washington State played against BYU. They came up just a little bit short uh, last weekend, but it was 21-19. They were right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, those guys are still playing, and, and you know, they've got a chance this weekend against uh, Arizona State to, to get a good win. So we'll see if they can finish this thing out and uh, – at least get to a bowl game. There's another job open in college football since we last recorded a podcast, and that is at Texas Tech. On Monday, they got rid of Matt Wells. And, you know, this is a a really interesting firing because they're 5-3. and three. You know, it's not been like some horrible season for Texas Tech. Now, look, they, they certainly had a rough loss uh, last weekend against Kansas State. They were way ahead in that game. It was at home. They should have they won. They didn't finish it out. They end up getting beat. Kansas State broke an eight-game uh, losing streak in, in the Big 12. So that was an embarrassing loss. But it's just hard for me to imagine a Texas Tech coach with a 5-3 and three record getting fired. Now, obviously, they have – the worst of their schedule coming down the stretch. You know, they've, they've got Oklahoma this week. They've got Iowa state. They've got Oklahoma state. They've got Baylor. I mean, they could easily lose all four of those and end up five and seven, but at least let the guy have a chance to lose those four games. Right. I mean, when you're five and three on a college football team and you're Texas tech, I think those players probably feel like they have a chance to have a decent season to, to, to finish out a decent year. And the fact that the administration just basically cut the cord on them at this point, that, that that's uh, that's pretty controversial. But I guess it's just for Texas Tech, they wanted him gone. They knew it where this was headed. They wanted to just start over, and so they're going to do it now. I don't know. I don't know how you feel about it, but I it, 
there's something about it that doesn't quite sit right with me. Yes, yeah, it's, it's unfortunate for the players. Um, it's like the Ed Orgeron thing. Let's fire him before he goes on another run, and like we're stuck in a position where he's eight and four, nine and three, and we can't get it done. Um, the difference is, I don't think Tech's going to win more than one of their next four. They probably would have topped out at most at seven and five. So, I don't understand the argument for now. I mean, it's a weird time of year to fire anybody. You know what I mean? Like late October, it's just it's just weird. It's just a weird point of the year. To, it's past midseason. I don't get it. Um, I think what happens next is tech is interesting. Um, they're clearly not going to go the Tommy Tuberville route, you know, and get the guy who watches CNBC all day. They want someone who knows Texas and is invested in the state. So clearly, um, to me, that's the Sonny Dykes. The question is whether um, Sonny went to school there. Obviously, his dad was a longtime coach there. Um, whether he can say no, because I don't know about you, Dan. Like I look at what he's building at SMU and the pipeline he's creating in the, in the Metroplex High School ranks. I don't know if Texas Tech is a better job than SMU going forward. I don't know if it is. And if it isn't, his family ties and a chance to pick up where his dad left off is that trumpet. I don't know. But to me, Sonny Dykes is the obvious number one candidate. Yeah, I think we don't. what we don't know about that is going forward kind of how much the American Athletic Conference gets beaten down in the next iteration when Cincinnati and UCF – and Houston are gone, right? Uh, does that make the SMU job significantly worse? Does it stay that does it not really matter? Does it give them an easier path to win conference titles? Like, right. I, I don't know the answer to any of those things could happen. I don't think Texas Tech is that good of a job. <laughs> You've got Tommy Tuberville didn't win there. Cliff Kingsbury was basically a 500 type coach there. They fired him. He goes to the NFL. He's got an undefeated team. Uh, with the Arizona Cardinals right now. He obviously can coach. Uh, it just didn't work there. And with Matt Wells, you know, it, what you, they didn't like bottom out with Matt Wells, but it just never clicked. So I don't, what do they want? Like, what do they, what do you they know, aspire to? What do they think they should be? What they really want, Dan, is they want Cliff Kings very bad. So I think that there was. That's a, not going to happen. I know it's not, but there's fire is remorse. Um, with Kingsbury, fire's remorse. No, but seriously, I like and, and, and I think yeah. every time, uh, every time Matt Wells played on Saturday, the next day in in the Avalanche Journal, there was people looking the box score to see how the Cardinals did. So he's so beloved there. Um, it's not. It was not your typical firing in terms of go, his way out the door. I think they almost threw a parade for him. So I think that that was an issue for him. I think Kingsbury hung over Wells the whole time. So the farther away you get from him, I think the better. Um, to me. The Matt Wells hire was misguided in a sense from the start because he's not a quirky, gimmicky coach. Um, he's more of a meat and potatoes guy. So yeah, I think that. Much. So I think going back to and to call Dykes a gimmick coach is is rude, but gimmicky in terms of here's what I'm about. Like I have an offense that I'm about, and the offense that I'm about will be very recognizable to people in love. So if you can get Dykes, I just I don't want I don't think you overthink it. You just you you give him a check and you ask him what it takes to get. Him. Meanwhile, we got more conference realignment news. The Sun Belt has officially added Southern Miss and Old Dominion. Uh, they are expected to add Marshall and then James Madison coming up from the FCS level. It leaves Conference USA as the biggest loser in the whole conference realignment thing because now, and it's not immediate, it's going to take place over 
you know, a couple year period, but basically they're down to five teams going forward, Florida international, middle Tennessee, Western Kentucky, UTEP and Louisiana tech. That's right. their conference. I, I, what do you do with that? Like, I don't know what they can do. And it's like, and like it's five, it's not even five teams in the same geographic region. It's five random teams, right? West Texas, Louisiana, like Western Kentucky, which is an hour north of Nashville, and then my, you know, the the Miami area. Like it's a mess. It's a freaking mess. Now, you know, Jim Delaney used to be the most powerful person in college sports when he was the commissioner of the Big Ten. Now he is consulting with Conference USA on realignment, trying to woo the likes of Tarleton State to come up to FBS. Like, this is where we're at right now. I got to tell you, if I am these other leagues, I don't know that I would accept Conference USA or however they rebrand it as a league if their game plan is to bring up Tarleton State, Sam Houston State, add New Mexico State, blah, 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 blah. How is that an FBS conference? I don't understand it. Yeah, you can't take them seriously, and they shouldn't deserve to have a seat at the table if you're adding in those teams. Um, like you said, Dan, I think the biggest issue is that like all five are not a package deal. Um, so you no. can't just say, hey, we're going to join XYZ. So I don't know what like what UTEP does. You know, I, I just I don't I don't know what their next step is, but I can't take them seriously as a conference at all. I mean, you're adding Tarleton State and, you know, Walla Walla Community College. I just think at that point you you start being a punchline. Um, so Conference USA is definitely definitely not going to exist much longer. By the way, Dan, do you know that the USA and Conference USA doesn't stand for anything? It's actually I've asked the question. It's not Conference United States of America. It's just Conference USA. Did you know that? I did not. But I mean. What else would it mean? But they, it's just not, it's not Conference United States of America. It's just Conference USA. There's no just dot, Conference dot, dot. USA. Right. So I hope that they, they're going to have to rebrand for that reason alone. But you can't add in the, you know, uh, bottom of the barrel teams that they're playing to add in and be like, okay, yeah, so our champ is going to be able to get to the 12 team playoff, right? I mean, give me a break. That's a joke. Do, do you remember what the old, old, old Conference USA, the original Conference USA was like? Like the one that had like Louisville in it? And, and yeah. Like, was that, yeah. Uh-huh. What, when did that was early 2000s, late 90s or before? Yeah, that? I mean, it was no, it, it, it was in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it, it kind of started to break up around, you know, 2004, somewhere around there, 2004, 2005. Mm hmm. Um, when Louisville, Cincinnati, South Florida went to the Big East. Uh, but that was, a, if you remember, that was a hybrid league, and they had several basketball-only schools. Mm-hmm. They had Marquette. They had St. Louis. It was, a, it was like the strangest conference. They had Charlotte, uh, and then Charlotte came back to Conference USA as a football member. Like It was, this, it was the strangest amalgamation of, of schools, but it was actually quite a good league especially in basketball. I mean, because at, at that time you had Calipari at Memphis, Bob Huggins at Cincinnati, Rick Pitino at Louisville, Tom Crean at Marquette. Wow. And, and you know, Bobby Lutz had it going at Charlotte. Like, that was a hell of a league. And, and now, like, you think about from those origins, 
to through several evolutions to where it is now. It's just it's it's a little bit sad. Oh, by the way, Mike Slive was the original commissioner hmm. of Conference USA, and then he and then he got the job at the SEC. Yeah. I mean, so what do you do if you're? Is it tenable to go like independent? If you're UTEP, like being independent, I just, I don't really like, I'm thinking about UTEP because they seem to be the one that's in the market. Um, they're having a they, great year. Yeah, they're having a good year. Um, obviously, they don't bring a lot to the table, but, you know, I don't know what they do. Like, I don't really shed a tear for Western Kentucky, but UTEP seems to me to, you're in Texas, huge city, you know, opportunities. I don't know, but I don't know what UTEP yeah. does. Yeah, I, I've never really understood why the Mountain West didn't want them. Like, it's in their footprint. It's mm-hmm. they're relatively close to to New Mexico. They're in the Mountain Time Zone. It's the only major city in Texas that's in the Mountain Time Zone. Mm-hmm. Um, for whatever reason, the Mountain West has never wanted them. I don't really get it. Like, I'd rather have UTEP in my league than San Jose State. You know, if we're being honest, like I don't know what San Jose State does for you mm-hmm. personally. Hawaii, I mean, like I'd rather have UTEP. UTEP's got a real fan base. It's a city that's got a lot of people in it. Uh, it's also got a lot of history. They've got the Sun Bowl, which it, at the time was a major bowl game. It's 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 a beautiful place. It's it's a unique type of city. Uh, they, they won a national championship in basketball as Texas Western Glory Road, mm-hmm. all of that. So it's sad what's happened. But the whole thing just sort of goes to show what a mess all of this conference realignment stuff right now is. And and we'll just keep an eye on on what what might happen. Conference USA could ultimately be going away. All right, let's uh, transition into this week's games. And a lot of conversation this week about Michigan. And I've seen a lot of stories about Jim Harbaugh and how he's gotten Michigan kind of back on track at 7-0. and Harbaugh, I don't think he's been bad at Michigan. If you look at his record over time, he just has not been awesome. He hasn't beaten Ohio State, hadn't gotten to the playoff. Just maybe slightly less impressive than what people expected when he got the job, but they've not been bad. He got a reworked contract over last season, Basically made it easier for Michigan to fire him, re- reduced his salary. They got rid of some assistant coaches. They got a younger younger staff. They got rid of Don Brown, whose defense was not effective toward the end of his tenure. And now here they are, 7-0, and and they're playing at Michigan State, who's 7-0. and And I got to say, I am super excited for this game, even though it's probably not going to be the most aesthetically pleasing game. But as far as kind of trying to figure out what Michigan is in this current iteration, I think this is the game that will tell us everything we need to know. Yeah. And likewise for Michigan state, you know, I think, um, yeah, look, they've got four power five wins. No, four power five road wins. I believe Michigan state. And I think that's the most of any team in the country. Think, and, I, and I might have just airballed that, but I believe that's correct. Um, but still, there's a sense of like skin of their teeth is too strong. But there's a sense that maybe Michigan State is is overplaying, outperforming. No disrespect. Um, so yeah, I'm interested in seeing how they match up. Michigan's more talented. I think Michigan's got more weapons. 
But even when the, these two teams, like one of these two teams is better than the other, typically these are well-played games, hard-fought games. So, yeah, noon kick. Um, I don't think we believe, either one of us, that the winner of this game is going to win the Big Ten East or win the Big Ten. I think we both think Ohio State is the team to beat. But, again, like the winner of this game, like there's three hurdles left, right? Michigan State, Penn State, and Ohio State for Michigan, for example. You win this game, you're one step, one hurdle pass closer to being a, a playoff team. So it's an enormous, enormous game. And and I correct me if I'm wrong, I, I don't even – I'm not sure the last time these two teams met at seven and oh six and oh plus. Like I, I have no idea unless it happened recently and I've airballed it. Well, it, it's good that you bring that up because the game that uh, they played where where it ended on the blocked punt, I covered that game. Mm-hmm. Where the, I'm, I'm, tr- I think they might have been both undefeated at that time, but I'll, I'll have to check. Yeah, so I mean, definitely have played with with similar stakes. But this one, I mean, this is like six for seven. I mean, this is legit. I, and I don't know if we're talking about this game enough because it's a really loaded weekend, but this is one of the games of the year in the Big Ten. You know, there's like five huge games from today through the end of November. And, and this is one of them. This is an enormous game, enormous game. You know, and I think if we were looking at another conference at the SEC and it was six v seven, we'd be, you know, it'd be all about it. And I think we're probably overlooking this game a little bit. Yeah, I, I was wrong, actually. That was Harbaugh's first year, and they lost that opener at Utah. Right. Uh, but they had gotten uh, they had gotten up to number 12 because they'd, they'd beaten Northwestern, who was who was very good. Mm-hmm. Um, they'd beaten BYU. They'd been playing really well. And so that was a number 7 versus number 12 matchup, and, and Michigan State won on the one of the craziest game-ending plays we've ever seen in college football. Um, yeah, so – it's really interesting because I, I think the, the biggest thing that surprised me about Harbaugh's tenure is, is not so much that they haven't beaten Ohio State or anything like that. It's that I look at their recruiting year after year, and they've had some guys, but I actually thought Harbaugh would be better at recruiting than he has been. You know, and he got to Michigan, and they he, he was ruffling feathers all over the place. He this whole satellite camp debate. Remember mm-hmm. the satellite camp? Of course, yeah. You know, he's he's taken his team to, to Italy and to where I, they, they went on a few foreign trips at maybe Paris and where I, I can't remember where all they went. And that got a lot of coverage. I mean, ESPN sent Marty Smith with them overseas to like cover their mm-hmm. whatever they were doing in, in Italy. Like it, it's sort of hard to think back like how big of a deal that was. And now it just seems like, like Michigan, we just sort of shrug our shoulders because they haven't done anything uh, on that scale that would deserve it. I covered, I went down to IMG Academy. They they played a scrimmage in the spring at IMG Academy. People got all fed, you know, freaked out about that. Like, it's just amazing the arc of how Jim Harbaugh came into Michigan, and yet you look now, you know, seven years in, crazy, and. Like, what did they get out of that? Out of all that stuff? Certainly not. I mean, they're not recruiting anywhere near the level of even Ohio State. And yet, I, I don't know. I just don't know how to feel about his tenure. Like, is there is there something that they should have done early on that 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 they didn't do, and and why they're sort of in this position where they they feel like sort of an underdog story at seven and zero? Oh. I. I 
it, it's it's the most vexing thing, the most vexing program in the country for me to evaluate right now. Yeah, it's hard to gauge what this year, like this specific year means, what 7-0 means, um, because they haven't played the games that matter. You know, this could be a 9-3 and team. I think 9-3 and after starting 7-0 is going to feel really weird um, for Michigan. Even if they're like on the borderline New Year's 6 mix, they're probably, you know, 16-20 to 20 in the final playoff rankings. That's going to feel very strange, and people are not going to know how to grapple with that kind of season. Um, expectations were so high. I mean, they were crazy. I mean, the expectations was was that he win the national championship. And not a I lot thought, of I, I, I have a, I have a famous tweet the day he was hired saying it's inevitable that he's going to win a national championship. Well, I and mean, obviously that was wrong. Yeah, but that, well, maybe not. But that's how it felt at the time, right? Because he had, first of all, we don't really talk anymore about what he did at Sanford, but that was ridiculous. Unbelievable. Um, Unbelievable. What he did with the Niners. And the trajectory that he had the program on his first three years, I mean, let's just be honest, it felt, it still felt inevitable. After that tough loss, um, the over, was it, did that one go to overtime, that like 32-29 game against Ohio State um, with the spot? Might have just been regulation. I don't remember exactly. But um, after that game, you still felt like, I wouldn't say more certain than ever, but you still felt, okay, like they're knocking on the door. So, um I think a lot of it depends on your perception of him as a person. I think it's easy not to like him. Um, I mean, no, no disrespect to him. It's easy not to like Jim Hart. Um, he doesn't make it easy to like him, maybe is a better way to say it, um, or to like his program because they're, they're, they shut things down. I don't know anything about any of the players. Um, I don't. There's no personality there. They're just Michigan, and they're boring. Um, so I think that's, that's an issue in terms of how we perceive the school and the team. But, I mean, this could be the year that they do it, you know, I don't. I, mean, I know Ohio State looks unbeatable, but this could be the year that they do it. At least get into the playoff. I don't know if they can win it when they get there, but you know, they, he obviously hasn't pointing back up. We can at least say that at seven and zero. So, are you saying that Michigan is winning this game Saturday? You, you've got them. I, I think they do, I, and that's not like I know it's like it's one of our running gags to say that I think Michigan State is garbage. I, I think they're a good football team, and most of all, I think that they play hard. And like yeah. we talk a lot about five stars and all that kind of stuff. And obviously that's where the difference lies. And Michigan state plays really hard. And that's a, that's a testament to the team and to the coaching staff. Um, so I don't want to overlook them again. I think Michigan's more talented. Um, I think that they, I'm not saying Michigan state thinks they're playing with house money at all, but I think Michigan maybe has their eyes set on something grander um, and may have that kind of expectation that this is just the next game that we need to win and play and win. So, you know, I, I think they do win, but again, like it would shock me. Uh, well, it would really surprise me if we're looking at a 31-27 game. I think this has the potential to be in the teens. And the winner, if you get to 21, I, I, if you ask me today, I think 20 points is going to probably win this game. Staying in the Big Ten, the Saturday night ABC game is Penn State at Ohio State. We talked about James Franklin. Is there any reason to believe that Penn State gives them a run here? Ohio State, since that loss to Oregon, they have got their stuff figured out offensively. To me, they look like a machine. To me, Ohio State looks like they could be the team to beat for the national championship. Yeah, I think it's weird, right? Because they played Akron, uh, Maryland, um, yeah, Rutgers. It, Rutgers, Indiana. It's not been a murder. Yeah, right. So you're not like playing, you know, the 27 Yankees. But they look damn good. So, yeah, I think we can start having that conversation. Ohio State looks as good as anybody, if not better than Georgia, at least along with Georgia, uh, pretty dominant. Um, the only reason I think this game is close is that the game has historically been close. This series has historically been close, like recent history. 
So part of me feels like there's an opportunity where Penn State can hang around. But I don't know how you can look at Penn State the last two, even three weeks, and convince yourself for a moment that they have what it takes to beat Ohio State. Like even for a moment. It's going to take a like a flop, I think, from the Buckeyes for Penn State to win this game. And if they lose, they're five and three, have lost three straight. And if James wants the USC job, I would start looking at, at Holmes because um, it's <laughs> going to get pretty nasty. I think it's going to get pretty nasty at Penn State if they're five and three and they lose by 20 or 28 points. I don't disagree with that at all. All right, let's move to the SEC. Speaking Georgia, of Florida, Holmes, the cocktail party. Speaking yeah. of homes in Southern California, Clay Helton's home yeah. was amazing. And it is amazing, assuming that he still lives there. Um, so we don't really know been how there? much. Have you been there? I, I spoke to him, and he gave me a tour, like a crib-style tour. Um, oh, wow. Over Facebook. Okay. Um, amazing home. And I remember thinking after I saw that, man, my life sucks. You should have been a football coach. I yeah. should have been a football coach. I really should have been a football coach, even a bad one, just a bad one. Um, and I'd be living like he had. Anyway, James Frank, I'm just, if you're if you're house hunting in L.A. Um, in the Southern California region, you're going to have some amazing opportunities. I'm I'm jealous of that. You don't get a lot of value for for the dollar, uh, but uh, when you're making seven million a year, you're you're going to come out okay. Yeah, so. All right. Let's move to the SEC. Georgia, Florida, the cocktail party in Jacksonville. Georgia's a 14-point favorite. Florida's 4-3, and three, and they've been underwhelming. However, this is one of those games where Florida, emotionally, they throw everything into it. And, you know, they've had a, a week to prepare. Georgia, according to Kirby Smart, they, they're going to have JT Daniels back in some capacity. Supposedly he looks pretty good in practice, but Stetson Bennett is going to play a role as well. So they could be using two quarterbacks. Florida is probably going to use two quarterbacks as well with Emory Jones and Anthony Richardson. So the game could be a little bit strange, but uh, I don't know. I mean, I think everyone's going to go in expecting Georgia to just romp, but something tells me Florida will um, challenge them especially their, their defensive backs. That's, that's maybe the one area where Georgia's a little bit weak is, is in that secondary, and if Florida can make some plays down the field, then this game could get more interesting than some people think it's going to be. Yeah, the key to the game for Florida, I mean, big surprise, it's explosive plays. Because I don't think Florida or really any team, maybe outside of Alabama, maybe even Alabama, based on what we've seen from Georgia, is going to win by like putting three drives of 10 plays and 78 yards together against the Bulldogs. It just doesn't seem like a workable solution, which is why I think Richardson needs to be your quarterback. We've talked about this before. Make him your quarterback because he gives you an element of danger. I don't think Emory Jones does. Um, I agree with you. Like this series, we talked about Penn State, Ohio State. This series gets interesting. And I think Florida can make it interesting. I don't believe that they can beat Georgia. I don't believe that. In my heart of hearts, I don't find a shred of it that makes me think that they can beat Georgia. And if the game goes the way we expect it's going to go, the, the Dan Mullen discourse will continue in Gainesville. I think it's crazy to suggest that he's in trouble. He's not in trouble right now. But at 4-4, four and four, there are going to be people who are upset. Um, I think 
there's a good case to be made that that you bring back a lot of that team next year with Anthony Richardson and and maybe you can challenge Georgia, but uh, we could be getting to a Dan Mullen inflection point and and it'll be interesting to see if he comes back. I mean, he's had interest from from the NFL. Uh, certainly, there's going to be open jobs, good open jobs. So just something to monitor. I I, I would expect he'll be back at Florida next year, but. Do you think he's like in escape hatch territory because of the Penn State job becomes available? Um, he's from that yeah, of the I woods. Mean, Seems he's to me like northeastern. Yeah, could be an interesting fit. You know, I spoke to Kirby Smart last week on the sidelines of Arch Manning's football game. Um, he didn't speak back to me, but I did say words to Kirby Smart. I wanted to talk to him about this game. I didn't get much out of it, so I don't have any great insight. But I do think based off our limited interaction, that Georgia uh, is – like Florida is a key game, right? But I think that they are already evaluating the what is in the future for this team. That was my very limited conversation. That's what I took away from talking to Kirby Smart. In other words, he realizes that this team has the potential to do what we think they can do, which is run the table, go unbeaten, win the national championship. There, there's no doubt, and uh, it'll be interesting to see how they evolve offensively at this, down the stretch of the season with a healthy JT Daniels. That's something we're all going to be keeping an eye on. Uh, Ole Miss at Auburn, you know, you, you look at Ole Miss more and more, and they're looking like a team, as far as I'm concerned, that could very well go 11-1, 10-2. I think they're going to end up in a New Year's Six Bowl. I mean, this is the toughest one they've got left. Auburn is, is a two-and-a-half-point favorite. And certainly, you know, I could see a situation where Ole Miss is just sort of emotionally exhausted, you know, because you go back, I mean, the Alabama game where they get whooped, they beat Arkansas by one, you know, crazy 52-51 game. The whole drama with Tennessee, they survived that. And then – the, the Manning stuff, uh, retirement ceremony, beating LSU, which is a huge game for them. It would not surprise me if this is where Ole Miss maybe lets down a little bit and, and just sort of peters out or you know just exhaustion sets in. But after this, Liberty at home, which will be interesting for different reasons with Hugh Freeze. They, they get A&M at home. They get uh, Vanderbilt at home and then at Mississippi State. I mean, to me, this is shaping up to be a hell of a year for Ole Miss. Yeah, and that Corral, by the way, can can he might be the Heisman favorite right now? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I don't know if he's definitely co-favorite. Like him and Bryce Young are one, two, or two, one, whatever. But um, look, Ole Miss is like Alabama losing the Iron Bowl from making the SEC championship. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like from playing for a shot at the playoff. And if they get to that point, let's say they're eleven and one, and they play Georgia tight, then they're all of a sudden thinking, "Hey, we should get into the playoff." I mean, that's ridiculously down the line. But, yeah, I think this is a New Year's Six team. I do think they lose at least once the rest of the way. I mean, if they lose twice, they probably don't get in. But they'll lose once at least the rest of the way. And I think, yeah, it could be this week. I, I don't know where Corral is from a physical perspective, you know. And I think they need him in the lineup, which is why he played against LSU, because he was obviously really beaten up after Tennessee. Um, his numbers have been dipping a bit. They've just been dipping a bit. And if you look at him overall – um, his numbers, there's a lot built on two games, you know, Austin P and um, I think Middle Tennessee, and I might be blanking on the on the on the, that non-conference game where he built a lot of his numbers. So I think he needs a kind of breakout game in SEC play to to reclaim the top spot in terms of the Heisman or being a first-team All-Conference pick. 
But um, I think this game with Auburn is going to be wild. You know, I think these are two teams that play fast and loose. So I don't know if it's going to be like 48-47 or 52-51 like Arkansas, but I think this game is going to be pretty wild. All right, let's move over to the Big 12 where you've got Texas at Baylor, which I don't want to spend a ton of time on, but I do think that'll be an entertaining game to watch. And, and Baylor is having an unbelievable season at 6-1. and one. And, you know, Dave Aranda is a guy who could very well start coming up more and more for, for a USC job, for an LSU job. Not, not sure he would leave uh, or that he's a good fit at, at those places, but it's impressive what they've been able to pull off. And then Oklahoma. We mentioned Texas Tech is going to Norman. Oklahoma is the most disrespected 8-0 team in college <laughs> football history, I think, but he, even by their own fans. Like, usually in these situations, like we've seen – I remember a few years ago when Miami was – you know, got to what, 9-0 or 10-0, something like that. Under Rick, Maybe even yeah. 11-0. I think they were eleven and zero, or at least ten and zero. They lost to Pitt, right? They lost to Pitt, but so I just use that as an example of like a team that's kind of having an undefeated season, and yet everyone in the media is kind of doubting them. That hey, are they really that good? Do they really belong? And usually the fans are like all in on the team, pushing back. The media sucks. You guys are just haters. You, you hear all that stuff all the time. Honestly, it's it's Oklahoma fans who are driving the bandwagon uh-huh. on this about how underwhelming they are at eight. No, maybe it's because they've seen great teams before and they know that this one is not it, but boy, they were, um, they were less than impressive in, in beating Kansas last week. And it's just sort of like, what are you going to get from them week to week? It's, it's unclear and it's unclear how much more they're going to be able to improve over these last four games to justify being in the playoff. Even if they're 13 and Oh, I'm sorry. Like, I could I I the way they looked and the way they're playing, I could argue against them being in the playoff at thirteen and zero. Ooh, I mean, I could definitely argue that they're going to lose to Iowa State. Um, it's weird, right? They're, like you said, hard to predict. I thought the way they played against TCU was really impressive. I thought they played really well. Um, I know they gave up big yards through the air and gave up thirty-one points, but overall, I thought that was a really good performance. Kansas, not so much. Um, one thing we can all agree on is that Caleb Williams is is awesome. Um, he's just fun to watch not to mention super productive and obviously a difference maker for OU. I still feel like, well, look, I felt like as of Saturday at 11.59 a.m. that OU was a team that was going to get better every single week. And I disagree with you. I think at 13-0, they're going to get in based off the chaos, whether they win when they get there. Um, I think the way they played against Kansas kind of puts a hole in that. So I'd like to see them play Texas Tech and win by 40. You know, a team with an interim coach. uh, I don't know what they're playing for, blah, blah, blah. If OU is legit, then they're going to steamroll them. Um, so we'll see. Um, but Caleb Williams, I mean, I'm going to watch how you play every week because of him the rest of the way, because he's been that fun. Yeah. He does some stuff that, uh, is just super impressive and he's, he's obviously major talent and it's the reason why I'm not going to give up on Oklahoma making something out of this, this year, a couple of kind of random off the radar games that I think are going to be pretty fun. SMU at Houston. Uh, I, I will, retract what I said earlier in the year about Dana Holgerson. I basically called him coach ski mask because mm-hmm. it seemed like he was stealing money. Uh, they're six and one. So they, they've gotten that thing uh, turned around after that awful loss to Texas tech early on. That's a he flimsy no six and one, Dan. I don't know what to make of that it's, six and one, but, but he's, he's at least no longer stealing money. No, he's, uh, he's and, earning his paycheck. And, and SMU is seven and zero. Oh, a big game for them. Really, really big game for them. 
Uh, Fresno State at San Diego State. San Diego State 7-0. Brady Hoke is um, doing his thing out there, which we've talked about. But they're um, they're impressive, what, what they've done defensively. They're, they're, they're tough. And then the third game I find really interesting is Virginia going to BYU. Bronco Mendenhall, I just think it's cool that Bronco Mendenhall is bringing Virginia back there to play after, um, you know, after all these years. And I think that's going to be an interesting scene. And I think maybe the player who's having the best year that nobody's talking about is Brennan Armstrong uh, from, from Virginia. I mean, his numbers are absurd. Yeah, he's played seven games, and he's already number two in the school single-season yardage list. He's like five touchdowns short of the single-season record. He's going to obl- 23 touchdowns, six interceptions. Yeah, he's going to obliterate every single school passing record. Um, yeah, and it's not what like it's not really what their offense has been. I mean, it's always been quarterback centric for Bronco at Virginia, from Perkins to uh, uh, through Armstrong, and I'm missing one guy in between. Um, but um, yeah, this one, I mean, this offense is all Armstrong. He's been carrying the load, so he's a fun team. I think Virginia's pretty good, but there are a couple of good night games. This is one of those 10-15 kicks that um, subplot storylines and. And obviously, I think uh, the winner of this game gets back into the top 25, or Virginia gets into the top 25 and for, for maybe for good if they win this game at 7-2. and two. Bronco Mendenhall, by the way, um, a really nice guy, <clears throat> very centered, uh, grounded, uh, good program builder. Um, I look at a lot of programs specifically in, like, the Big 12, Big 10 footprint. I could have hired him multiple times over and didn't, and, and you probably missed an opportunity with him. He'd be a stealth guy to look at for USC, I think. Yeah, I told. Hey, look, he's a California dude. Uh, he's a surfer. Yeah. So I, I, I completely agree with you. I, I, that is not one that's going to light people on fire. But I think he's proven at UVA that, like he did at BYU. I mean, this guy, he's a program builder and a maintainer. And I, and I don't know if he's a guy that you hire because you want to go fifteen and zero. But he's also never been at a place where fifteen and zero is a legitimate possibility. You know. So I'd be interested in that. I agree with you. Um, I think he's an interesting. Major Power Five openings. If I was an AD, he'd be one of those guys that I would definitely, definitely evaluate. Well, I mean, listen, he's been a head coach since 2005. He has had one losing season in his career, and it was the first year at Virginia when he inherited a tire fire. Right. And then immediately they spring back in year two, and they they get to a bowl game at 6-6. and And then, yeah, eight wins, nine wins. Last year they they finished five hundred. This year they're gonna win another, you know, not eight nine games. Like, mm-hmm. it's impressive. It's very impressive his head coaching record. Yeah. and he's and he's only fifty five years old. Like, he's still kind of in his prime. So, um, yeah, just really, really impressive stuff. Let's uh, end the podcast just talking a little bit about what you referenced earlier. And I know you you maybe don't want to give away everything in terms of stuff you're working on, but you did see Arch Manning play in person. Uh, how was that? And what did you learn? What do you think is, is going to happen there? Well, I'll say um, just from a football playing perspective, um, before the game, people I spoke to around the program and around the school were predicting they'd lose 60 to nothing. Berkeley prep down in Tampa had like, <laughs> I think they've got eight to 10 kids who are division one FBS on that roster, not all seniors, but they've got eight or 10 kids who are going to play division one uh, high level. They got the kid who's going to Iowa state at running back. They've got a tight end. 
Uh, Tavita Pritchard and and uh, Morgan Turner from Stanford were at that game to see their tight end commit. Just a supremely talented roster. So they thought they were going to get bombarded. Uh, so people there were happy. I think they lost 49-24, and people were pretty pleased. Um, he's a legit six foot four. He's legit two hundred pounds plus. His arm is legit. Um, story I heard when I was he's there. Fast. He is. He's. He's relatively fast. Like we're used to seeing Mannings on the sundial. Um, he's got stopwatch <laughs> speed. You know what I mean? So like he he's he's legitimately athletic. He's different than his uncles. There's no question about it. Um, things I heard there about him were just his ability to grasp the game. Like uh, a coach told his coach that um, that Arch was the quickest thinker that they've had like in their QB room. And a lot of that is coach speak, recruit speak. But I think that there are a lot of coaches who are really impressed with his ability to digest the game. Um, Achilles didn't play like the best game of his career, but I thought he played really well. And I think he justified the fact that he's the number one QB in that class. I think there's a lot more to him than just being a Manning. Um, I think there's a legitimate, legitimate talent there. Um, and in terms of recruiting, Dan, um, I'm hearing Georgia, Texas. Um, and, and I think that everyone's hearing the same Georgia and Texas are the finalists. I think at this point, if I had to pick, I would say Texas and, um, Ole Miss and LSU, uh, are not options. I don't like neither one of those things are going to happen. Tennessee is not going to happen. I think we're looking at those two finalists and, and the decision will come sometime after the season. I think at the latest by the spring. Yeah. So obviously uh, I wrote a piece last week about kind of breaking down his reported top choices and sort of the positives and the negatives. It seems like Texas Sarkeesian's really, really deep in there with, in terms of his relationship with Arch Manning, mm-hmm. um, Georgia's got in great position. You know, Clemson was considered the favorite at one point. Um, maybe the year they've had changes that, and kind of the way the offense looks right now. Um, Alabama, it's it's you know, and then what effect did last weekend have? Just the whole Manning Palooza down in down in Oxford. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see. Yeah, I think there's a there's a, there's a desire from the family because is the family is very invested in this. Obviously, more I mean as much as any other family um, is to have a connection with the head coach, and there's not yeah. that connection with coaches outside of Sark and, and Smart. It's just not. So I think that's why those guys are in the lead. Um, not just the offense and not just the success, but the relationship that uh-huh. he has. And like you said, the relationship with Sark I think is deeper than what he has with other people. All right. Well, that's where we'll leave the podcast for this week. Thanks very much uh, for listening to the. College Football Fix podcast uh, presented by USA Today Sports. Uh, certainly grab a subscription to uh, USA Today Sports Plus if you can and subscribe to this podcast on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. Leave a comment, leave a uh, thumbs up or whatever you use to say you like the podcast because that helps us uh, grow with new listeners. So, We'll be back next week to talk about everything that happened uh, last week and all the big news in the college football world. Hope everyone has a great weekend. We'll see you next time. The College Football Fix Podcast. With Paul Meyerberg and Dan Wolken. This is the College Football Fix Podcast from USA Today Sports. Sports.